Hi everyone, I'm Petres and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've watched some of our content so far and liked it, please consider liking this video, subscribing and donating on Patreon. Today we're talking with Dr. Neville Wellington. The doctor is a GP and managing practitioner at Kenilworth Medicross in Cape Town. He's been working in general practice for over 27 years with pediatrics and diabetics among his main passions. He's completed a two-year postgraduate diploma in diabetes in 2012 and now runs the Center for Diabetes and Endocrinology, or CDE. Neville is a staunch advocate for the low-carb lifestyle, especially in the treatment of diabetics. Uh, Dr. Neville, welcome to the show. Thank you, Beatrice, and thank you for inviting me. This is a real privilege and just wonderful to, to, to be able to speak to you and to, about some of my passions, really, I suppose. Yeah, especially, yeah. And, and we'd like to actually get into that and get a bit more into the details because I know this is a field that actually is somewhat, you know, I think we had this discussion with with uh, Professor Noakes uh, where we said, you know, it's, it's kind of like a divisive issue. Like a lot of people, you know, yeah, have yeah. a very strong opinion about one way or the other. And he said like, no, it's simply not the case. Like the evidence is there. So we would actually like to explore more of that evidence to not make a decisive issue, to have it, you know, out in the open. So just to start that all off with the start of discussion with, could you just tell us like, when was the moment that you saw Banting as like a superior diet? So as you mentioned in the intro, I was doing a two-year diploma with the University of Cardiff, and it was fascinating for me because at the time I thought, oh, you know, I, I really don't know much about diabetes, or I'd been trying to to treat patients, and I just felt, you know, this must be reversible. This must be a way. There must be a way to control diabetes and 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 do better because patients are just not doing better. And the problem was when I did the course, and I spent two years. It was a fantastic course. Um, the I realized that that what we were telling patients is high, you know, your, your sugars will go up when you eat carbohydrates, but you, you must you, you must keep your fats low because that causes heart disease. But the whole point around it was to say, well, sugars go up, but we could see that 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 diabetes um, actually is causing the damage. And how was it doing that? And and when I was doing a module on cardiovascular disease, one of the, the research items we had to do was looking at, at how glucose itself is very inflammatory and damaging, especially to cells, to arteries, to nerves, to tendons, you know, around, right around your body. And it started kind of starting, made, made me think, well, why are we then pushing carbohydrates because they've raised glucose levels? And then and, and why don't we actually lower carbohydrates? And it, it was around the time that Prof Noakes had come out with his epiphany about carbohydrates and sugar and glucose and you know low low carb and and it was kind of like nobody seemed to be talking about that and i and i suddenly realized you know i initially thought mm, you know I, I prof has always been good at what he's been doing and, and i trust him so i thought you know i really must think about this and um so it was kind of a breakthrough moment when i realized hang on a minute you can actually reduce the carbohydrates reduce these glucose levels and the damage that they're doing and and why not? And that was where I really started started thinking. Actually, this needs. To, we, I need to be looking into this. And then on top of that, I had a, a, a just a, an interaction with a patient of mine who he was poorly controlled diabetic. He had very high triglycerides, and one day he came in and his HBMC had been running at 11 percent, and it was suddenly seven percent, and his triglycerides, which had been running at thirty, were suddenly down to one. And I said to him, "What have you been doing?" You know, this is fantastic, you know. And he sort of said, well, you know, actually, I've um, been doing Atkins. And I said, really? You know, how? And, you know, it was kind of the first time I'd seen something that happened to, to a patient of mine that really showed improvement. And so putting these together, it kind of made me think, wow, actually, 
this this is what I need to investigate. And and that started me down this road. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the high carb, um, like high sugar type of lifestyle, the more active type of lifestyle, which is, you know, probably most, I want to say, um, encouraged by, you know, advertisements and, and old style, um, you know, information we have on, on dietary situations. If this is, is this well, we would say the the common believed cause of diabetes. Or what do we know about the cause specifically today, in terms of what triggers it in certain people? Yeah, so, I mean, the the idea around what what causes diabetes has has been around for a while. And you know, in the nineteen sixties, uh, George Campbell, who was a doctor in the in KwaZulu Natal, he, he he was following up. He was he had noticed that there was this high increase in diabetes amongst the sort of Zulu population and the Indian population. I mean, the Indians had come in to help on the sugarcane plantations and they were bringing in people into to work on uh, on the sugarcane plantations. And one of the things that was happening is you're noticing this increase in, in diabetes amongst these populations. And a few things were obviously playing a role. They were, were, were more economically active. They, they were able to, to afford these sugar drinks. So Fanta was a big thing in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were being paid in sugar. You know, they would get their, their ration of sugar at the end of each week. And so he started calculating what it took to, to how much sugar you needed. And this is the 1960s. And he actually worked out that it literally took about, well, in those days, they called it 70 pounds, but about 30, 32 to 35 kilograms of sugar per year for about 20 years to become a diabetic. Now that, so that kind of says, well, that really look that sugar is causing it. So how does it do it? Well, you know, we've now come to understand that the, the uptake of sugar and specifically fructose, which is that sweet component of of sugar, you know, glucose molecule. I mean, the saccharide molecule is disaccharide molecule is or sugar is just glucose and fructose combined in fifty fifty. And so the fructose gets metabolized in the liver. It it's it actually gets metabolized into into increasing fat. And you get this fatty uh, production in your liver. Your liver then becomes damaged. You 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 produce. People know about DAGs or diacylglycerol, that sort of blocks the insulin um, ability to control glucose production in the liver ultimately. And then with time, you're obviously producing more insulin, trying to control this liver, and you you become insulin resistant. So you have to have more insulin. Your liver is overproducing glucose, and eventually you end up with diabetes. I mean, that's it's kind of in simple terms, but we, it really is the sugar that's causing. It's not the fat we're eating that's laying down fat. It's actually the the conversion of glucose and fructose into into fat. Yeah, and if you say like this type of lifestyle or this diet, you know, takes approximately like twenty years, which is also usually a a period of time that you know people's um, immune systems come a bit weaker, like people maybe aren't as active yeah. in that part of their life. Like it's kind of like a, you know, it kind of builds up, builds up, builds up. But I mean, if it takes twenty years and you had this experience with a patient where they followed a different diet, they followed a different lifestyle, and then it had a drastic effect on di- their diabetes, what's the reverse yeah. timeline? Uh, on diabetes in terms of, of doing another different di- lifestyle instead of treatment necessarily or with treatment yeah so we've we've had some i mean I've, over the last eight years nine years been tracking patients and literally if you get somebody to to con to stop eating the carbs the and the sugars and you bring their glucose their, their carbohydrate intake down to about 30 grams a day or as much as you can you, you know so I spend a lot of time teaching patients what are the carbohydrates, how much grams they are, and then trying to bring them down. We see improvements within a week, two weeks. So, uh, you know, and, and, and 
I've got lots of charts showing patients' glucose levels just radically improving. Um, and and, and that's, that, that's, that's the amazing thing is that you, you can literally see almost reversal in about two weeks um, down to normal levels. And, you know, in terms of HbA1c, we only track that every three months. So, but within three months, you, you know, I've, I've seen patients come from 11% down to 6.3%, down to 5.9% within three months. So reversal is quite quick. It's actually it probably, probably within two weeks. Depend, it does depend a little bit on how long you've had diabetes right. for as well. But I mean, if, if it's if it's such a quick reaction, what exactly happens in the body that is that is actually able to fix this this quickly? It's like, is it already you know, you know, geared up to fix it, and it just needs to just stop that intake of carbs? Like, what exactly is is the thing that triggers this quick recovery? Because I mean, it, it is a very quick recovery in like medical terms for for something of this magnitude. It's, it looks miraculous at times. I mean, mm -hmm. when I look at it, and I look at some patients who managed to do it, I think, wow, and and I. I, I Basically, I think that there's there's a healing process that that happens quite quickly. You you're stopping um, damaging the liver. The liver becomes slightly more sensitive to insulin. It's reducing its its output. You don't see complete reversal in terms of your morning glucose reading. So often we see patients will have a a, a higher uh, dawn phenomenon in in the morning. They, they still have a dawn phenomenon in the morning. So they, they'll often have glucose readings sort of between seven and eight, which is still um, diabetic range. But the rest of the day, if they keep away from the carbohydrates, definitely improves. And then slowly the dawn phenomenon, the low, the, the morning readings start to improve. But yeah, the, the, I'm not 100% sure exactly what it is that, that that's happening, but it happens. And we see it with low calorie diets, we see it with bariatric surgery, and we see it with a low carb diet. So something is happening that's profoundly affecting the, the metabolism and the, and the hormonal milieu that that changes and, and clearly our bodies are not are just not designed to be able to handle this high carb intake but when we re when we reduce it there, there's healing that takes place yeah i mean one of the other approaches to doing this um that's not banting uh, because some people still have a lot of concerns which we'll get into soon about you know the fatty diet uh one of the approaches that people do is is fasting uh, on di on diabetes specifically or just like fasting in generally what mm -hmm. what what is the optimal amount of meals that like one should have a day and how long can go one how long can one go on fasting itself like is, isn't that damaging in of itself absolutely not <laughs> I've not seen any anybody getting damaged by fasting. In fact, I've seen the exact opposite. So obviously, if somebody does a, you know, I mean, people can do 40 day fast, we know that from from, you know, from church studies, and, 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 you know, and you can, and you can survive them quite, quite, quite well. So, um, so it's, it's definitely, I don't know that you can say that there's an optimal amount of meals. What, what is optimal is that you do need time between meals for insulin, for glucose levels and insulin levels to come down. Now, studies have shown that it takes between four to six hours for glucose levels to completely come down to normal from pre-meal readings or fasting readings down to the, 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 the pre-meal next meal. So if you're not giving that time, you're just not allowing insulin levels to, to drop down low enough so that you can start utilizing fat for energy. Um, so, but I mean, there are various ways of doing it. So some people do, you know, I mean, I know Jason Fung, for instance, would, would, would push, you know, almost a two week fast initially to try and do this massive reversal. And, and, I, and people get a lot of success for that. I've had a few patients who've done that as well. 
Um, but my push really is because you're trying to do for the majority, you know, people find their way in this in terms of fasting is, is that once you lower your carbs, your hunger starts to reduce and you can therefore reduce down to three meals a day. You know, diabetics have been told to eat six meals a day, which is absolute rubbish. You know, it, it just damage, it just continues them in a, in a diabetic um, mold. You know, they never get chance to get their glucose levels down. They never get chance to get their insulin levels down. But so, so if you're going to do three meals a day, you need five to six hours between meals. If you're going to do two meals a day, people do the 16, 18, 16, eight fast, sorry, where they do 16 hours, will often come to 12 o'clock in the day, have something. In fact, for me, most days are like that. And I'm not diabetic. It's just that that's comfortable for me. And I, and I don't feel hungry until midday nowadays. Um, and then the, the benefits of fasting, we know, are the repair to cells. You, you, you need time for, there's a term called autophagy, where your cells actually almost clean themselves out of excess proteins and the rubbish that kind of accumulates. But with fasting, it helps to, to almost regenerate your cells. Obviously, that happens during sleep and fasting as well. Yeah, I know. I think like the popular term, I'm, you have to correct me if I'm sure if I'm understanding this correctly, but I think it's intermittent fasting is, is the 612 um, uh, diet where people don't really eat uh, breakfast at all in the morning. They like start only at 12 and then they uh, stop eating anything, I think, after nine or is it after eight? I'm not exactly sure. But is that connected yeah. to that one or is this a more structured better one? No, no, I think I, 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 people probably talk intermittent fasting is the 16, eight uh, out of your 25. So you do the 16 from about eight o'clock um, at night to about 12 in the, in, in the afternoon. Um, and, th and then it's not to, to say that you should be grazing the whole time through that, those eight hours. You have a meal and then you have a period of time again and then you have another meal. And, you know, what we've found is that the problem is if you, if you snack a lot in between those times, even on healthier, supposed healthier foods, you you can still you're still stimulating insulin. So you, because you get your, your GLP one is being um, still stimulated. So the 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 issues around fasting are, I mean, they they still been understood, and and you know people they, there's a bit of divide around you know fasting or not fasting, but I think. People find their way there because they become they come, become less hungry because they're not spiking the sugars the whole time and not spiking the insulin and then they start to 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 change their own eating habits. Hmm. Well, um, uh, when we had a chat with uh, Professor Noakes, um, he had uh, quite a few interesting opinions to give about and perspectives that he gave about a lot of the faulty theories about uh, banting and, and sugar and the effects of, of fat in a diet and so on and so forth. And, you know, he also said that these were perpetrated because of investment of large sugar companies. Now, I know this is something that you're not exactly too sure on, on or no, hmm. difficult for you to answer, perhaps. But I do know that you have a lot more knowledge about the statistics in terms of per capita use of like sugar or technical uh, statistical details like that could you perhaps elaborate on that and perhaps just your your you know opinion on nutritional advice in, in general in terms of how much sugar people are eating yeah i mean in in terms of you know of our, our, our companies out there pushing and and overriding science that's difficult for me to say you, you know um but the reality is we know that for instance i think in 2018 hewlett's led gave out their their statistics on sugar usage and they were they, and, and, and I got this from an actuary friend of mine, and she f found that the they said the sugar tax is not really going to make a big difference to them because the, the current average um, use of sugar in South Africa is still about 33 kilograms per person per year. 
<laughs> no, I remember when I told you kilograms. about 33 kilograms, yeah, 32 to 33 kilograms. They were saying, well, Mozambique is much less and Zimbabwe is much less, and that's economics as well. So the economics are, are, are what's driving this, you know, and, and I mean, what they were talking about is the amount of sugar that they're obviously selling, but it's going into juices and fruits, I mean, uh, mm. cool drinks and into sauces and into, you know, all the, the, the biscuits and cakes and stuff that have been used. So, you know, you know, if you, I mean, in my pre 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 um, banting days, I know we would probably as a household go through about a 2.5 kilogram packet of, sh of sugar a, a, a month or so, you know, but to think that that the average person is, is, is doing about 14 packets of 2.5 kilos uh, a year is, is, is quite astounding. And it's no wonder we're seeing this high rate of, of uh, diabetes. I mean, yeah. in the last IDF statistics, I was showing South Africa close to 14% uh, rate of diabetes right now. Yeah. And but I mean, it, 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 it leads like, I mean, there definitely is an addiction component to sugar that might sure. have been proven, you know, without a doubt. Um, and it leads a lot of people that have no concerns about this to try and find like an alternative. Like they still have that craving, but they're working their way off of sugar. And I mean, you know. <laughs> Us South Africans, we really like our like our Drewvoshma our Biltong and our meat-based, you know, snacks and stuff like yeah. that. So, for a unique supplier South Africa that has Biltong and Drewvors and something, how does that compare on the banting scale? You know, is is Drewvors and, and Biltong is it safe to eat in small quantities as a protein substitute? Look, I, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I eat those as as a as a substitute. The, the the issue is sometimes, you know, there's nuances always, and and the, the purist would say, well you know there's sometimes they put fillers into the divorce and there's things that could be carbon banting but you know I, for me I, I choose the fatty cuts of, of biltong and and I'll eat them as a snack or as sometimes even as a, as, as a small meal if if I'm, if I'm hungry but but I mean generally I don't I don't see that as a big problem and, and mainly because I'm just testing glucose levels you know I, I, if, if a diabetic is wanting to control their, their glucose and they you know they're testing their glucose levels and i get patients to test the glucose levels six eight times a day um so they can see what's happening every meal and to be honest I, i'm not seeing spikes of glucose with biltong and and drivel so so for me that's the evidence that i'm looking at I, you know but the i understand that you know some people will say well you know there's too much protein and 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 you've got to be careful of, of, you know i'm trying to just get patients to reduce their carbohydrates and find alternatives that they can sustain on mm, yeah and i mean i'm i'm myself actually i'm in the process of switching over to less sugar but yeah. like you said it's it's a bit of a process it's difficult and i constantly try and find things that you know not that's bad and it's like yeah. that's that's a way of switching it over for example um like i don't i didn't really drink um like soda or sugary drinks beforehand but i very often had like a juice or something like that and mm. just you know simply going to the shop and looking on the nutritional value what like the percentage of sugars and juices alone maybe think like okay maybe coke isn't that bad maybe they're all pretty bad and in that <laughs> regard like sometimes you know you go you go for like the zero sugar coke and you go like okay i need a snack but all of these snacks have sugar in them i'll, I'll go yeah. like for like rosa tomatoes or something like that but you still says it still trigger it still triggers an instant response but these type of things like that has the the proven zero sugar type um scenario like the substitutes and the artificial stuff like that's something that people also concern about what's your opinion in terms of the substitute and the zero sugar um substitutes in terms of using it look i mean as as as, as people are trying to kind of get themselves off the sugar it, it's it's a useful kind of stepping stone 
I think. Um, does it stimulate glucose levels? No. So, you know, I'm not seeing patients spiking their glucose levels when they have a sugar-free drink or, or that sort of thing. I mean, talking about juices, I mean, juices, you know, they're kind of fruit doctor, you know, um, but <laughs> actually it's not, you know, they have the same amount of sugar, if not more than the, the sugar drinks. You know, the, the sweetened yogurts have even more. So, you know, we, you can imagine what we're doing to our kids with those things. Mm -hmm. But in terms of patients who they still need that sweet and, you know, sometimes you want a little bit of a sweetener, coffee and that sort of thing. There's, there's, not a, there's not a huge amount of evidence to say that they're bad. But, I, but then there are patients who say or people who say, well, they've had headaches with these, with these non-nutritive sweeteners. They've had cravings. They've had other things that, that happen. And I don't think we can completely say that those don't exist. They definitely do. So we've kind of got to get transition people off sweet so that they used to more sort of non-sweet stuff. Mm. But, but it, for, it's, for some people, it's a process. And, and, and as you rightly say, for some people, addiction is just so strong that mm. actually I've had some patients who just don't do it, can't do it. They, well, they just don't want it because actually they love their sweet. And, you know, one has to accept that. Unfortunately yeah. for them, you know, you, you don't you don't get to choose your consequences. <laughs> well, and, and in terms of consequence, actually, good you mentioned it is something that people are a bit terrified at the moment, which is uh, with COVID-19 pandemic, mm. uh, a lot of the um, variables, sorry, the varying um, experiences people had that tested positive for the virus um, that, you know, didn't have any symptoms or did have symptoms. And the one thing that like kind of is able for us to get some surety about the uh, about like the fatalities and and the results of COVID nineteen is the comorbidities, and like a lot of people that have at least a lot of countries that have statistics on this said that like obesity is a big 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 comorbidity uh, for COVID nineteen, and this runs along the same line as diabetes. Like, is there a connection uh, between diabetes and COVID nineteen? I know Prof, Prof Noakes actually said like there's I think you're twelve times more likely to die from COVID if you have diabetes. Like, what's what's evidence in this scenario? What was your experience with this? over the past two years? So, I mean, yeah, sadly, I've, I've had some patients who passed away, diabetic patients. I've had some patients who are just overweight and have passed away. Um, you know, fortunately, you know, we still, the numbers of mortality compared to people ill is still, is, is quite low, you know, and I'm saying that with all humility, it's, it's, it's horrible. This, this disease is terrible. And you know, I've I've, still, I've had some patients who I thought they're not going to do well, but have done have done well. Um, so so you know, just the actual statistics. So the studies that I, that I've looked at were defining. You know, if your diabetes is poorly controlled when you get COVID. So so in terms of saying diabetes doesn't make you more risky of getting COVID. You, you still have the same risk of getting COVID as anybody else. But when you have diabetes and it's poorly controlled, your risk of mortality is much higher. And that's been looked at around the world. So, so if somebody was admitted and their pre-admission HbA1c was above 7.5%, for instance, or they'd had two readings of glucose in the last 24 hours before admission of more than 10 millimoles per liter, so that they, they, they're spiking too high. They're, in New York, for instance, they, they found that 41% of the poorly controlled diabetics were dying versus 14.8% of the, of the well-controlled diabetics. So that, that's a huge statistic. Ooh. Yeah, um, no, that's... In England, they, they said it was 2.36 higher. And then China did a really interesting study, did a, high, a big study, and they found that the, in patients with poorly controlled hospitalized, 11% were dying versus 1% who were, were, were in good control. 
So it's, it's around the control as well, which again is, is a marker of inflammation because diabetes, the poorer your control is, the more inflamed you are. Then you've got COVID that, that causes these massive inflammatory milieu uh, um, um, that really that, that and, and you compound the two together and mm. you end up with this terrible mortality. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that part is really terrifying for a lot of people because it feels like they, they, they don't know what's going to hit them. Like they don't know if they're going to get a bad reaction or not. And in a lot of cases, making sure that you're managing whichever other comorbidities you might have is, it's like you said, the statistics just show it just works significantly better if you're on that type of treatment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic, uh, like that's, that's proper evidence to back this up, you know? Yes. And, and, you know, even I, I had a patient who, who the moment she got COVID and she, she had been actually quite poorly controlled and her son fortunately was with her and we were WhatsApping each other like two or three times a day. What's her sugar reading doing now? What she, why did her sugar go above eight? What did she eat? No, she had a slice of toast. Why did she have that slice of toast? You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? yeah. Because, you know, we actually were so terrified that if she lost control of her diabetes, the, the COVID would, 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 would worsen. Mm. And so actually the moment you even get COVID and if you, you must get your diabetes under control. You've got a better chance, even in the first four days, uh, before the inflammatory um, sort of uh, storm happens. Yeah, and luckily, like you said, the reaction is quite quick. Like if you get your diabetes under control, if you have a low carb lifestyle or diet, rather, you know the the, the correction period for that is almost exactly the same as the incubation period for for COVID itself, which is two weeks. So in that regard, just getting it under control as quickly as possible just drastically increases your chances. I want to change that over a bit to a discussion. I mean, this sure. this is connected in terms of uh, uh, COVID as well, in terms of our alcohol restrictions. I know the alcohol restrictions were specifically more uh, to keep uh, less uh, alcohol related uh, trauma out of the hospitals, mm. but um, I do want to know what is the connection between alcohol and diabetes? I mean, we know alcohol also comes from sugar. It's a form of fermented mm-hmm. sugar. Um, do you recommend alcohol on the Banting diet as terms of like whether you should or not should not if it's connected <laughs> to a Banting diet uh, or even to reverse uh, diabetes? Yes. So, I mean, obviously we know that alcohol affects the liver, damages the liver. So there's, there's, there's correlation there. You get a fatty liver with alcohol as well. We know, you know, people are really, you know, drinking a lot of alcohol. They can get pancreatitis, which can damage the pancreas. So they can, you know, damage their insulin producing cells. And that's in, in effect, and also have a, an effect on causing diabetes. So there, there is some link there. Now, obviously it's, it's more to do with how much you drink than, than, than really are you, are you drinking alcohol? Now, can you reverse diabetes using alcohol? <laughs> I, I think that you're gonna that's a that's a big stretch i, I think <laughs> i suspected as much but you know it's worth asking yeah. <laughs> but you know can you drink some alcohol on the banding well you, i don't know if you're if you're aware of of the drinking man's diet no a, no so in the 1960s as god and elliot produced this book they and they, and they they were actually the pre-atkins kind of uh, gurus and they said you know you can you can um lose weight getting down to 60 grams of carbs and they and they had this little booklet 14 pages of science and lots of pages of what what are where the carbs come from and it's a brilliant little book and they called it the drinking man's diet because whiskey has no carbohydrates in it Because it's so refined, it's, it's, it's gotten rid of all traces of sugar in the alcohol. No. So, so, the, so your spirits wow. and that have very little carbohydrates in them, whereas your wine and your beer have more. 
So, so they were saying, you know, tongue in cheek, they called it the drinking man's diet because there's no carbs in there. Yeah. Although they said it's for teetotalers as well. And they've got a little thing and woman and, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, details, but, the, yeah. but the point around it was that the, the spirits in that have no carbs. And, you know, if you're going to be, be drinking, you know, try and choose a low carb, um, you know, alcohol, mm. you know, spirits maybe, and, uh, you know, whiskey and, and water is probably the, your, your lowest carb. So yeah, a, a more refined again, spirit would actually have lower carbs. Uh, but I mean, there is there is a common saying, uh, again, uh, you need to tell me if this has any scientific grounding or not. But mm. there's a common saying that alcohol is converted into sugar once you go into the body and therefore it's very anti um, anti banting. Is this even remotely accurate? Or is this just a, I don't a, a I don't know where that's come from? Because I'm, I'm not yeah. aware. I mean, you you're, you break down alcohol by utilizing glucose. So you, you, there's a there's a enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase which helps break down glucose which is a problem so if you're fairly alcohol naive and i've seen this in youngsters ago on these binges you you can drop your glucose levels quite profoundly by having drinking a lot of alcohol because because you, you utilize glucose to break down alcohol so it is a it is a bit of an issue that you you know if, if you're a diabetic and you're or you're type 1 diabetic you're taking insulin and you're taking alcohol you can get a low glucose reading you know like early morning after having had a, a night out with, with a lot of drinking. So th there is that concern around alcohol and diabetes, but it's more a concern about going, your sugar's going low after a binge rather than, than that you, you know, if you're drinking alcohol in moderation, I, I guess anybody who drinks alcohol less than me is moderation. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, so maybe that a glass good. or two a day, yeah. <laughs> not, not a day, but maybe every couple of days, but you know, and, so even even less distilled spirits that have sugar still in the drink itself, even that amount of sugar is not enough for the body to actually process the amount of alcohol that comes along with it. So you actually still drop, or is it specifically like binge drinking? They obviously have like harder spirits. So it's specifically yeah, the it's probably the, or is it the harder spirits. Okay, I would even say you know too much. Actually, probably even the beers and that too much of that would probably also have an effect. Okay, Maybe okay. Now I was, I was wondering for us like that, like wine. You know, I just want to know where I'm on that scale. <laughs> Well, your red wines are slightly, your dry wines are slightly less carbs than your sweeter wines. I mean, that just goes for, so, yeah. you know, I mean, it's not going to necessarily reverse your diabetes if you can drink too much of it, but it, and it, it may not help your, your, your weight loss if you're having too much of it either. And I just want to address uh, one of the other um, terrifying comorbidities, or not, sorry, it's actually not a comorbidity, it's just a statistic that mm. um, there's an age uh, connotation between uh, the older you are, the higher risk you are for morbidities, uh, morbidities in, in COVID specifically. Uh, that's something that's been found for no, a number of reasons, I understand that. Mm. But just in terms of um, uh, diabetes specifically, is there a point at which you are at risk of not being able to reverse it, uh, depending on how old you get? Like, for example, can, can you like, can it, is it even possible to reverse diabetes in a 90 year old uh, person, woman or man? Actually, I, I thought that was a fascinating question. I, I really loved it because it actually is you can you, you actually can. And I've got patients who have literally in their 80s, um, changed their diet, changed their lifestyle and brought their diabetes well under control. And, you know, interestingly enough, you, you know, diabetes is obviously associated with so many comorbidities, heart failure, strokes, heart disease, kidney failure, you know, all the all the things that we we know about. And I had a patient you know, 80s come to see me fairly poorly controlled on insulin. She literally was was on a, in a wheelchair, came into my room and 
I sort of thought, oh, there's no ways I'm going to be able to do much with this lady. And 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 the mo- most amazing thing is she was the most amazing person. She just took on board what I said. She's, she cut down on the carbohydrates. And amazingly, we saw quite amazing effects in terms of her heart failure improving, the weakness improving. She lost about 10, 15 kilos because she was quite overweight. And within six months, she was actually walking into my room. Which what? was which six was, months. Within six months, yeah. That's a very quick recovery period for people that are that old. It is. It was amazing. And, you know, so she, I think she was 81 when I started seeing her. And and she had about four years of really good health. Now, when I say good health, she was able to cook again for her family. She was able to move around. She didn't have to be taken to the toilet anymore. I mean, it just, you know, those are sort of things that, 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 that really um, are things that we can make it make a difference in, and you know, and and she brought her HbA1c down to about six percent, mm. and reduced her insulin dosage very small amounts, and she had good quality of life. Sadly, you know, at about eighty five, she had a, a a small stroke, and I think she had a, another episode of heart failure, and she passed away. But she had that good quality of life for those years, whereas actually she would have passed away probably three or four years earlier and her family i mean they were a wonderful family um i actually interviewed her her um daughter on a radio program that I, that, that that i do and she she was just so grateful that they'd had four years of, of really good health with their mother so and i've seen others going into their 90s being well controlled you know but i mean age does catch up with you eventually none of us get out of this life alive but uh <laughs> we're not there yet no but yeah. i mean I, I have to i have to agree with that as, as well i mean I, um my grandmother um she didn't have diabetes but she uh she had um leukemia um oh. in her later stages of her life and uh, she decided that she was not going to go for for treatment i know you know cancer is a different uh, beast entirely in terms mm. of controlling it but she sure. decided that she's had a very good life and she'd rather live not without the side effects you know of chemo and stuff like that for the last couple of years but she did follow a very, very strict diet in terms of uh, extending her life and making sure she's living as healthy as possible. And because of that, we were able to live, uh, we were able to enjoy her company for like two more years, which was a year above her estimated um, time of like that she had left. So there's a lot of ways in which a very good lifestyle can, you know, a, a very good diet can extend your life in, in a various number of situations. I won't claim to have any scientific knowledge on treating cancer with diet, so please no, no. Me. I won't yeah. I won't make any claims in that regard. Uh, but I do know that you also wanted to add a couple of um, interesting or important points about uh, glucose uh, monitoring levels. Could you perhaps elaborate on that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, for me, the, my treatment of diabetes is, is to try not to be too prescriptive. So I'm, I'm trying to empower patients so that they actually can live the life themselves because they're going to be doing it most of the time themselves. So in terms of monitoring what you eat the most effective way to see what 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 foods do to your your glucose levels is to actually monitor your your, your glucose levels mm. before you eat and generally a, 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 when you eat food you're going to spike your glucose within about an hour so you want to okay. see what the spike is you know people have been saying two hours after you must test but i actually found that you need to test just before you eat and an hour after you start eating mm. and maybe an hour difference. and a half and to see the difference. Now, we know from studies of just normal, free living, you and I, no diabetes, the spike shouldn't be more than about 1.7. So if you're five before, you go to maybe 6.7 afterwards. And that's patient people who are actually eating carbs as well. You know, our body is actually regulated really well 
but with diabetes, they, they, with diabetic patients, they lose that regulation. So I, I sort of say you really shouldn't be spiking much, but don't, you know, 1.7 is kind of max. And, and the point is that, that patients find out, learn very quickly that if they eat oats, they will go from 6 to 11 very quickly. Wow. Okay, so just is that, is that like the, 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 the flavored oats or is that just plain oats in of itself? It's just plain oats. And I see it all the time. So I've got, I, I give patients sheets and I ask them to write down their readings before, write down what they eat and write down what the readings are afterwards. And cereals, you know, just there's just really no good cereal in terms of, of, of controlling diabetes you know so bread fruit pasta obviously that your cakes I mean, one lady came yesterday and i said what was the 17 about <laughs> she said no well, she, it was mother's day and she had to have a cake said, oh, oh okay yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so you, you you realize very quickly when you empower patients so monitoring is for me one of the kind of pillars of treating diabetes because that's the thing that gives patients um real-time data feedback that they can actually analyze hmm. and, and, I'm, and I really try to promote that now I mean we're busy doing a, a clinical trial now and what we've done is we put patients on continuous glucose monitors hmm. and monitoring them continuously to see what their glucose level is doing so that we can show them exactly what happens when they eat certain things and they they, they keep a record of their of their diet and what they're eating so they can correlate it and it's been fascinating. So, you know, you can use continuous glucose monitors, which I think we should be doing a lot more in, in patients, especially type 2 diabetes patients, if we trying to teach them right up front. Obviously, for type 1 diabetes patients, they can use them all the time because they really need to, to watch their sugars and the highs and the lows. But using CGM, using structured testing of maybe six to eight times a day, which is a lot, but actually, the more you do it, the less you have to do it later on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the better you monitor it, the more you have a clearer idea of exactly what's affecting it. Because if you did it over too much of a time, people aren't sure if it's, you know, it's just, if it's the piece of toast or the oats that they ate, exactly what the impact yes. is. Uh, with that regards, for people that are curious um, necessarily about monitoring their uh, their diets and also just like in general, they don't have diabetics, but like you and me, mm -hmm. for example, is that something that's a, it's a easy to get tool at the at the you know uh, at the Stellcore or or. <laughs> Yes, most pharmacies are, are just sell glucometers and, okay. you know, the glucometers are, are not particularly expensive. The strips are where they, you know, where the companies would make their money on. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you, you could buy a, an AccuCheck instant. I think it's around 260 Rand, 270 Rand for a little glucometer. And the strips would cost you about 160 Rand for 50. And yeah, you could definitely do it. I mean, I've done it on myself many times and I've used you know, I've tried out different things because I'm interested. I want to see what, what does it do? And, you know, I can, I've tried to like drinking a, a, a sugar drink and I can get my, my levels up to nine or 10, oh, which wow. is like, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's way more than that. 1.7 it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's very interesting because that tells me like, if you can get for, I mean, that's between 300 and 400 Rand, um, or might be 400, 500 Rand between that area, you can do, you know, a very empirical test with like 50 strips. I'm assuming if you test six to eight times a day, that's a couple of days in which you can choose, like, you know, inspect your lifestyle and then realize what are the impacts and then perhaps adjust accordingly and then later on test again. But I mean, I exactly. can definitely understand that there is a financial 
um, component towards whether people are you know comfortable with analyzing this or not. But if you just put it into perspective, the little bit of analysis now saves you a lot of medical bills later. So perhaps it is even worth that that amount of money. I just want to put that out there for people as well. Yes. Uh, but anyways, I just want to say thank you so so much for chatting us this very very interesting discussion. I want to give you a last moment to add anything you might want to say something you you might want to add. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, you know, we, we, I don't like to be divisive in this field um, <laughs> because I think we, we can all agree, even if we want to push low fat or, or, or other low calorie diets or whatever, you know, like sugar's bad. And I think on every spectrum, people are saying, don't add sugar, get rid of sugar drinks. You know, we can reverse diabetes. It is possible in terms of certainly in type 2 diabetes, we can we can reverse it. And, you know, people just need to start being curious for themselves as well. You know, you don't have to accept the, the standard myths of six meals a day. You only have to test your sugar once in the morning. You know, it's not reversible. You know, I heard another term from a doctor that everything goes back to the, everything regresses to the mean, you know. So diabetics will, you know, even if they do low carb now, they're going to go back to, 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 to their poor lifestyles eventually. Part of that is just we're in a society where we're eating high carb meals and, you know, we party around food. We, you know, and, and, and then doctors also say, well, diabetics never get better. So, why, you know, kind of why bother? We need to bother. We, we, you know, we've got to reinforce the message the whole time. And that, that is my appeal. Don't give up. <laughs> you know, reinforce the message. Keep monitoring. And actually, you can do this. And it's fantastic because, I mean, the, the results really are there. If people try it for themselves, they'll find it out as well. So there really is there really is no way in which you can debunk this easily if people just started testing and monitoring themselves. So that's that's a message from you that I, I really, really support. And I think that's hopefully more people listen to that. Um, I just want to say for our viewers that made it thus far, if you believe in uh, Dr. Neville's message, please, by all means, share this video. It allows his perspective to get to reach more people around the world to really make a difference. And of course, you know, it just helps us out as a YouTube channel as well. So uh, thank you so much to Dr. Wellington. And uh, thank you so much for watching. This has been Worldview.